Well, good evening. Welcome to our study of Revelation tonight. Glad that you're here. We're in session number 21 of uh, Revelation. Every, 21 Wednesdays we've been here going through Revelation. And we are to chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, the last half. Glad that you've joined us tonight. And those of you joining online, we always, several, always have several hundred of you joining us Wednesday night online. Glad that you're here as well. And looking forward to what God is going to do in our midst as we study together tonight. So let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you today for your, your word. And thank you, Father, for how you've worked in, in our lives throughout your word. And God, I just pray you'll continue to teach us through the Holy Spirit tonight. Lord, those joining us online, I pray the Holy Spirit be wherever they are as well, the one teaching us your word. God, thank you for Jesus, the one who will return in power and victory. I pray as we talk about the second coming tonight that you would just be the teacher and show us all things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, starting in verse 11 through 21. I read from the ESV in our study time, so turn with me there. If you look on your outline, first of all, a summary of where we are. It always helps to kind of figure out where we are. Sometimes people join us at all uh, different times of our study as well. So by way of summary, Revelation, John was exiled on Patmos around 90 A.D., received the revelation there on the Lord's Day. In this revelation, which we know as the book of Revelation, Jesus gave him a personal message to give to the seven churches of Asia Minor around him. So he did that, chapters 4 and 5 then. John saw the great throne room of heaven and uh, saw the great worship services taking place there. The scroll was there. No one was worthy to open the scroll. And so Jesus came, the only one who's worthy and qualified to be the only Savior of the world, came, opened the scroll, and opening of the scroll unleashed seven years of great tribulation where the world would writhe in death pains uh, that's chapter 6 through 18 of revelation and then satan tries to overthrow jesus and overthrow and counterfeit everything jesus has so everything that jesus is you see a counterfeit from satan himself that's chapter 6 through 18 the first half of the tribulation chapter 6 through 11 and then we come to the dramatic midpoint, chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation, midpoint of the Great Tribulation, and then the violent last half of the Tribulation in chapters 14 to 18. So that quickly catches you up to chapter 19. So look at letter B on your outline of, uh, of tonight of verses 1 through 10 of 19, the picture in heaven just before Jesus returns. Last Wednesday night, we saw chapter 19 opened up. The armies of the world had gathered around Jerusalem in the Battle of Armageddon to surround the city and siege the city, all the way from the Valley of Jezreel going north, about a 90-minute bus ride. Whenever we tour, it's probably 45 to 50 miles that you go from the northern part of the Jezreel Valley to Jerusalem. Armies will be that far extended, and they will then surround Jerusalem and place it under siege. Just as it looks like the holy city is teetering upon collapse by all these military forces, God dramatically sends an earthquake that is going to destroy the headquarters of the Antichrist, destroy Babylon. Now, is that Babylon symbolic? Is it literal? That's what we don't know. But Babylon will be destroyed in this great earthquake. And at that time, 
when Babylon is destroyed, Jesus will step out at the second coming. The first portion of chapter 19 we saw last week shows just before Jesus returns, shows a picture in heaven, and there is worship and hallelujahs and four songs of praise that come forth. Hallelujah, we talked about last week, is a very sacred word. It's not used very often, only used four times in all the New Testament, and all four of them are in Revelation 19. A few times the word hallelujah is used in, in a Psalms, but for the most part, uh, it is a sacred word reserved for the, the loudest praise of God, and it surrounds His second coming. So you can imagine how, how we anticipate the second coming of Jesus Heaven is anticipating it even more. And so that's described there in the first 10 verses of Revelation 19. So you have three songs of Hallel songs or Hallelujah songs, the praise songs. And then there's a fourth Hallelujah song and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We talked about that last Wednesday night, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where the Bride of Christ, which is the church, reunited with Jesus the Savior, uh, the Lamb. So the Lamb... Uh, the groom and the church, the bride, reunited in what's called the Great Marriage Supper. The Lamb, we talked about how Jewish weddings were unique, still are to this day, very unique, and how that his picture is mirrored there in the first portion of chapter 19. So that catches you up now to chapter 19, verse 11, where we are tonight. So let her see on your outline, the rider on a white horse. Well, we have finally made it. It's here, the second coming, the coming of Jesus Christ. And with that, an enormous flash of lightning tears through the sky from east to west, ripping the heavens apart. And Jesus of Nazareth steps out onto the stage of history for the second time. First time was at the birth, this is the second time at his coming. Now stop and go back with me just for a moment. Book of Acts chapter 1. Forty days after the resurrection. Jesus is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus tells them that I, I'm, I'm uh, basically the great commission to go and preach and teach and baptize. And as he says that, right before their very eyes, he ascends back to heaven as they're watching him go in the clouds up to heaven, the, there are two angels, one on each side nearby, say, why are you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus is going to return in like manner. And so therefore, be busy about what he's told you to do. In like manner. How did he leave? There, he's right in front of them, and he just transcends they're on the Mount of Olives. And so now, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus will come back in the same manner and will step foot on the Mount of Olives. How do we know that? Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 through 5, tell us about Jesus' return and tells us that he will once again step foot on the Mount of Olives. And whenever he does, it's going to be so forceful that his foot setting on the Mount of Olives is going to cause a tremendous earthquake underneath the mount. We'll talk about that in just a moment. 
Now, whenever we visit Israel and take, take a group every December from our church, about 50 of you, and we're going again December 7th this year, every time we go, one of the highlights of the trip is to go to the Mount of Olives. There, it's east of Jerusalem. It's a mountain ridge to the east of the old city of Jerusalem, separated by the famous Kidron Valley. So you have Jerusalem. You go down. Jerusalem sits on top of a hill. You go down the eastern side. There's the Kidron Valley. You go up there, and up on the side is the Mount of Olives. So you can see the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. You can stand on the Mount of Olives and have a beautiful view of the city itself. So on the Mount of Olives, you have there... Uh, a large cemetery, uh, Jews, and, and a lot of people want to be buried there for this reason. Knowing that Jesus is going to step foot on the Mount of Olives, there's a cemetery there, a large cemetery, because people want to be the very first ones that rise at his coming. So the cemetery's full. Cemetery there, there's houses, there are hotels up there, there are shops up there, religious sites all covering the Mount of Olives along with a few patches of olive trees scattered throughout. Somewhere, somewhere on that Mount of Olives that we've stepped foot on, Jesus is going to ascend from heaven and his foot is going to touch down. As I mentioned, uh, the force of his stepping his foot there at the second coming will be so severe that the earth's going to quake. Now, there is a fault line that runs underneath the Mount of Olives from east to west. This was uncovered in 1964. Jordanian officials were looking to put a hotel uh, just east of the old Temple Mount on the Mount of Olives. So they were doing uh, their research to prepare to put the hotel there in 1964. And they discovered a fault line that was one of the worst in the world. It rivals the San Andreas Fault in, on the West Coast. So they decided not to put the hotel there because of the earthquake-prone uh, re region that it was. So they moved it south. It's still there. It's called the Seven Arches Hotel, Jordanian Hotel, but it's south of the Temple Mount. They thought it was too risky to put it right east of the Temple Mount. Uh, it's been studied, the fault line has, by European countries for some time. Because the fault line extends from the Mount of Olives all the way through the city of Jerusalem. Splits the city of Jerusalem in half. So European countries wanting to divide Jerusalem anyway uh, through the years have studied it in great detail. Trying to divide Israel based on the fault line that runs underneath the city. About every 80 years, Jerusalem has a major earthquake. About it, you can look at it. You can look at history, about every 80 years, there is a major one. When was the last one? 1927, 93 years ago. Getting about due, isn't it? 93 years ago, 1927, now, now 2018, four, uh, four years ago, there were some tremors, 4.5 on the Richter scale there in Jerusalem, um, but not a major earthquake. They have had major ones just about every 80 years. So it's an earthquake-prone region anyway, and God has timed his earthquakes through the years that coincide with what happens, what, what he says is going to happen. So an earthquake is going to destroy Babylon, and when Jesus returns, there will be an earthquake 
that splits the Mount of Olives from east to west. It's exactly where the fault line runs today. So let's look at the passage and look at a description then of what's going to take place. Verse 11. Then John said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, John, as he starts to describe verse 11, he is seeing the climax of human history. It's going to end. But he also now sees the first of the seven final things he's going to record. The next three chapters, he's going to record seven things, then that's it. One is Jesus' return, then Satan's capture, then Satan's binding, then the millennium, then Satan's final end, then the final judgment, and then heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. So those are the seven final things that we'll talk about over the course of the next few Wednesday nights. And John sees now the ending of these seven. Now, if you go back to the bold judgments, remember the last of God pouring out his wrath on the earth, the seven bold judgments. Where does this fall in relation to the bold judgments? Well, it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, It gets kind of confusing here for commentators and Bible scholars and theologians. The timeline does. Some say that this is a part of the seventh bold judgment, what we're about to read. Others say, no, this happens after the final bold judgment has concluded. So we, we really don't know. But notice what John said in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open. Now remember in Revelation earlier, chapter 4, he saw just a door opened. Not all of heaven, just a door. Chapter 4, verse 1, I saw a door in heaven opened. And then, chapter 11, verse 9, he saw the heavenly temple door opened. But now, he sees all of heaven opened. So the picture is, God gave him just a peek at the doors being opened, but when Jesus returns, all of heaven is thrown open. And the white horse descends. Now, the white horse means victory over enemies. Um, Jesus is now entering the battle of Armageddon to, to end it. Jerusalem is teetering, remember. Smoke is going up from the earthquake. Uh, looks like Jerusalem is going to collapse. And Jesus enters to save Jerusalem and destroy the world. So the white horse, you probably have heard before, is symbolic. Donkeys were ridden whenever kings would come in, but white horses were ridden into a city whenever a a, a military conqueror had won a battle. So the donkey, when Jesus rode in at the triumphal entry, the shouts of Hosanna, was showed his kingship. The white horse now shows his victorious over his enemies. So you see the imagery of the white horse. Now, horses in battles in those days were a huge advantage. 
huge advantage over foot soldiers because most of, in biblical days, most of them had, uh, armies had foot soldiers, but horses were symbols of power and honor and speed and their color meant things. So the white horse means we have won the victory. So the fact that the heavens fly open and Jesus is on a white horse is highly symbolic that he is coming back as the faithful and true and righteous one to end the world to show that he is victorious. So notice at 12, the white horse and the one that's sitting on it is called faithful, true, and righteous. Just as a side note, uh, the Antichrist, the opposite of every one of those. Did you notice that? What we've been reading about him? Faithful, he's unfaithful. True, he's false. He's deceptive. Righteous, he fosters unrighteousness. So Jesus is now coming back to make right everything the Antichrist and the devil has done tried to do. Listen to what George Ladd said. George Ladd was a, he's passed away now, but a great Bible scholar through the years. Listen to what he says about the second coming. The second coming of Christ is an absolutely essential theme in New Testament theology. In his cross and resurrection, Jesus won a victory over the powers of evil. And by his second coming, he now executes the victory. Apart from his return to purge his creation of evil, redemption forever remains incomplete. So what he's saying was, at the cross, Jesus defeated spiritually the foes of evil, but now he brings it all to consummation. Now the enemy is physically defeated before our very eyes. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Well, that's interesting. Let's talk about that verse. His eyes, first of all, are flames of fire. Anytime you see fire in Scripture, it is judgment hell itself is judgment fire is representative of judgment so his his eyes are piercing judgment and on his head are diadems now what's a diadem we sing about it bring forth the royal diadem and crown him lord of all what's a diadem well, it's a crown, but it's a unique kind of crown. There were two words in Greek for crowns. One was uh, Stephanie, like the female name Stephanie. Uh, it means crown. Stephanos, which meant crown, but it was a crown of something you achieved. If you were a runner in, an, in the Isthmus Games, like the Olympics, and you won first place, they would give you a Stephanos that you placed upon your head. It was, a, it was something you achieved. But a diadem was different. A diadem was not worn by anybody who achieved anything. It was only worn by royalty. 
And so diadems meant royalty and authority. Isn't it interesting that when he's riding the white horse, he's not riding a Stephanos showing what he's achieved. He's showing, wearing the many diadems, showing who he is. He's royalty. He's authority. He's God Almighty. So he's wearing many diadems. And then it says he has a name written that nobody knows but himself. Boy, this, that one phrase has been the topic of a lot of theologians kicking things around and weird, strange beliefs throughout church history on what is the name Jesus has that nobody knows. And boy, they're all kind of secret theories and people, eisegetes, remember eisegesis, reading into and, and not exegeting, drawing out people, eisegete, oh, it means this, oh, it name means that, and all of these clandestine theories. What's the name Jesus has nobody knows? There's nothing clandestine about it. In fact, the name that no one knows is, is kind of symbolic because names, as you know, in biblical days were very important. You didn't just name somebody something that sounded good or as a family name. You named them something symbolic, their character or, or, or what you desired them to be or something significant in your life. The names were very important. And so to know somebody's name was to have power over them. It goes all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 32, and, and Jacob wrestling with the angel. And, what is your name? My name's Jacob. Not anymore. It's Israel. And, and so names meant you had power over somebody. You remember the Gospels whenever Jesus would cast out a demon? Say, what is your name? And they would tell him. Because you didn't just tell people names. Because there was a belief that if, if somebody knew your name, they had power over you. And when Jesus said, what is your name? We were legion for our many. It was, it was symbolic of saying, I have power over you. And so what we see here is that he returns and nobody knows his name. Because he is the most powerful. Nobody, nobody is more powerful than the resurrected Christ on the white horse descending at the second coming. He has a name nobody knows because nobody has power over him the Christ he is all-powerful let's continue on verse 13 he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood stop there what's with this robe and blood on it two theories one theory is that's the blood of the enemies, the blood of who he's about to conquer because he's coming as a conquering king in the battle of Armageddon to win it. So it's the enemy's blood he's coming. The others say, no, no, it's his blood. It's the blood of the lamb because by the blood of the lamb we overcome, right? So it's the blood of the lamb that wins the victory. So it's the lamb's blood. We don't know. It's not really told. We're just told that he's clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. Sounds to me, and this is just me, it doesn't mean it's right, sounds to me like it's more of a reference to his own blood 
that won the victory. It's dipped in the blood. But notice what's next. Fascinating. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So whenever the skies open and heaven flings open and Jesus returns, the name everybody will know him by is the Word of God. Now think about this. Jesus is going to win the final battle of the world with nothing more than the words of his mouth. That's all. Words. Not armies. Not nuclear weapons. Not warheads. His word. The very same one who spoke the world into existence with only his word. The very same one that had the power to simply say, let there be light. Boom. There was. The very same words that said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. The very same one who said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That one will flash his omnipotent power that the entire world will see simply by speaking. Speaking. That's all. His word was so powerful whenever he was here. Think about this. His word was so powerful, all he said was, Lazarus, come forth. And death had to obey. And his word was so powerful, he spoke to the Sea of Galilee, and it just went calm. And the winds and the waves obeyed him. And his word was so powerful, demons shrieked in fear, and illnesses obeyed him. That's how powerful his word was. And now, at the Battle of Armageddon, when all the armies are surrounded the world and going back and forth and looks like they're going to win, he's going to appear and all he has to do is speak and they're vaporized. Wow. So now let me ask you a question. What does that say about this? What does that say about the Word of God today? I know, I know we live in a culture that, that ignores it and mocks it and marginalizes it and redefines it and scoffs at it. I know that. But there's power here. The power of the Almighty that when He steps out it's just simply going to be the Word of God that obliterates enemies and sets the world right. Go to verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So John is looking up and the heavens are thrown open and the white horse descends and the one that's riding it is faithful and true and following him is an army from heaven. 
And they have white linen on, pure. Do you notice something odd about this army? Read it again. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Do you notice something odd about that? No weapons. No weapons. No swords. No spears. They don't take part in the battle. There's no need. The battle is not won by them. The battle's won by the Word of God. There's no armor. Just the linen. Who goes into battle wearing linen? Jesus wins the battle single-handedly by His Word. He doesn't need weapons. His Word's powerful enough. So the army is arrayed with no weapons and no armor. They're just tagging along for the victory. You remember when they arrested Jesus? Peter drags, pulls out the sword. Boy, he's ready for battle. And Jesus says, put that away. My kingdom's not about. I don't need swords. Put it away. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty now now notice there how he wins he will strike them down from his mouth his word the sword mouth like a sword now I shared with you several probably about eight, eight or nine Wednesday nights ago in our sessions there were two words for swords one uh, makari was the one that's the small one that's the one that Peter had in the garden most Jews wore one inside their inside the belt of their of their robes it was very small in fact in fact there was a group of terrorists in the Bible nicknamed the Sakari because they would pull out this small little dagger curved on the end and they were they were they were good with it and it's what Peter had. It says the sword, John 18, says it was a makari that he had. But it's not the word here. In fact, the word makari is never mentioned for Jesus when it, swords are associated. It's the other word, rompea, which meant long, long, massive, shining, sharp sword. The little small daggers you could do precision work with but the long swords you won battles with. And that's the word used when it says the sword that comes from his mouth. So out of his mouth, he, he appears. The armies there are gathered around Jerusalem. Out of his mouth, he speaks a word. And it was so sharp, it strikes the nations and the armies and the people and the power of that voice repels and vaporizes them go back to John 18 Jesus is in the garden right before he's arrested John 18 remember this verses 4 to 6 the night before Jesus was arrested he's in Mount of Olives and he was praying 
and a contingent of Roman soldiers marching across the Kidron Brook to arrest him. And Jesus saw him coming. They have torches, swords are drawn, and, and he sees them approaching, and they get there, and he says, what do you want? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And you, you remember this? Whenever he said, I am he, the soldiers were struck with an inv invisible blast radiating from his words that was so powerful it knocked them back, propelled them backwards, and it says they all fell to the ground when he just said, I am he. Just his words did it. And they got up, got to their feet, and on that night, Jesus withdrew his power and allowed them to arrest him. But folks, when he returns again, the force of his words will send enemies and nations reeling backward like that invisible blast at the cross. One theologian said his words will blast away the armies like twigs in a tornado. And all it is is his word. Do you remember the uh, old hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Do you remember one of the phrases in one of the verses talking about the devil that says, one little word shall fail him? Yeah, that's right. So the fierce wrath of God is present in just simply Jesus showing up and speaking. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, why the robe and why the thigh? Robe, as you know, robes, as you know, in Scripture were symbolic of majesty. Thighs were a symbol of power. Uh, in fact, they wore thigh guards. Many of the, the soldiers would wear the thigh guards. Thighs were symbolic of where you get your strength from, your power. And so symbolic of the majesty and the power that he has, his name written on the robe and on the thighs. And the title King of Kings was a title that went all the way back to the Persians in the Old Testament. The Persians were the first ones, the kings that call themselves King of Kings. And ever since the Persians, from then on, empires would call them, their kings, the King of Kings. And so now here is Jesus at the final time calling himself the title that fits Jesus the best, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now as he appears, everybody on earth that's still alive, they're going to see him. He is now made flesh or, or, or made uh, appearing before them. Look at verse 17. John now sees another scene. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Now, this is kind of an odd scene. Let's talk about this before we close. 
Verse 17, John saw another scene where an angel is calling forth all the birds to gather. And he uses the word ornion, from which we get the word ornithologist. That's a bird watcher. And so the wording that he used here could refer to any kind of bird of prey. Um, the word vulture is used, Luke 17, 37. In fact, whenever I was in seminary, I did a 20-page paper on one phrase out of Luke 13, uh, 1737, the phrase was, where the body is, the vultures will gather. Well, one phrase, a 20-page paper on the one phrase, which is a reference to here. Bodies will be assembled on the ground when Jesus comes back and will destroy them all. And he's going to win the battle and just with his word obliterate the armies that had gathered Valley of Jezreel. 45 or so miles all the way to Jerusalem. And there's going to be so many dead bodies that angels will call the vultures in for a feast. So many dead bodies, dead horses, dead flesh. In fact, the word flesh is mentioned five times in verse 18. So much flesh that vultures will come in for a feast. As the battle of Armageddon ends. Now this is prophesied if you go back to Ezekiel 39 verse 4 and then verses 17 through 20. It describes a feast for the vultures at the end of time. Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. God is going to give the birds of prey a great supper. Now experts say, I don't, I don't know about this, I would read this. Experts say that there are about one million birds of prey that have nesting places from Africa and the south to Europe and Asia in the east uh, in the in the north, and they migrate back and forth. And if you go from Africa in the south to Europe and Asia in the north, you migrate over Israel. That's the land bridge between the two. That's why it's always been very strategically located, and so. Every year, one million birds of prey supposedly make this trek. If that's true, he's not going to have to call them far, is he? Because they're all coming in for a feast on the dead bodies that will be in the Battle of Armageddon. Now, here's just another side note that's interesting. There was great indignity in the Bible whenever you left a body out to be unburied. In fact, there was, our culture is the same. You, don't, you, you bury a body out of dignity, and they did the same there. That's why at the crucifixions, when the Romans crucified, it was usually a criminal, and the families were embarrassed to claim the bodies. And so many times, most of the times, they, they, there was shame associated with the crucifixion. The Romans, the Romans, if a body wasn't claimed, they would take the bodies that were killed, that died at the crucifixion, toss them in the Valley of Hinnom, which became... A, a byword for hell later on with Jesus referred to the valley of Hinnom that's where the dead bodies unburied were there was great undignity there and Jesus of course remember when he died Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and says we want to bury his body because there's dignity in that and so now you have here at the end times bodies unburied as far as you can see for vultures to come and to feast upon and then look at verse 19. And I saw the beast 
And the kings of the earth with their armies, remember that's the Antichrist, and their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse and against his army. Now, hold on a second. <laughs> so, is the picture then that Jesus descends, slays the armies, and the beast says, oh, I think I can take him, and tries one last ditch effort to gather, assemble an army quickly and go against Christ? Yeah. But the battle's short-lived. It only lasts about one verse, 19, and that's it. And verse 20 says, and the beast was captured. That didn't take long, did it? And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. So he takes the beast and the false prophet, which two of the unholy trinity, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Doesn't, says they were, doesn't say they were annihilated. Just said they were put there. To burn, and we'll talk more about that whenever we get to to hell coming up in, um, in in the next chapter. To burn in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and then we go to verse twenty-one. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. What a powerful picture. Jesus descends at the second coming, and he is so powerful, and all he has with him is his mouth. The word of God is powerful. Armies defeated and birds gorging on the flesh. And then we get to the millennial reign of a thousand years next week in chapter 20. Questions or comments that you may have briefly before we close? I'm sorry? Great question. Two earthquakes or just one? We don't really know. Some believe the Babylon earthquake that destroyed that was one and Jesus was another. Some believe it happened simultaneously. So we don't really know. That's where the timing of this we're really uncertain on. Is it a part of the bold judgments? Is it not? Great question though. Yeah, because I mean, are, were there two or one? Don't really know. But we do know both will be affected by the earthquake, the Babylon, the, the Babylon as well as the Mount of Olives. All right, good to see you tonight. Hope that you've uh, had a great week so far and in studying, enjoy studying the Word of God. I do. I love studying it with you and going through these chapters each week. Next week, we will pick up with chapter 20. Let's close and we'll uh, dismiss. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that Jesus is victorious. And Father, thank you that the Word of His or this, the power of his word is so supreme at the end times, but God, we know it's even supreme in our day. And I just pray that it'll be the word of God that we preach, that we teach, that you bless, that our people live by, memorize. Uh, God, just employ it in their lives each day. And God, would you bring the power of Jesus into our lives as we follow your word. Thank you for what you've done and who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.